Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Great episode today. As always, we have a great guest. Today, it is storyteller Adam Wade, who is well-known for The Moth. He's done a ton there, and he's done a ton in his career, and we talk about it. It's a really great chat. But first, I do want to mention that he has a show coming up at the Magnet Theater in New York City this Friday. He also has a class that's starting this Sunday, October 2nd at the Magnet Theater. We have links in the bio for both of these things. Also, if you happen to miss that because maybe you're listening a week later, you can go to adamwade.com and keep up with his shows and his classes that he has going on. So we'll have a link for that in the bio as well. This is a really great episode. He offers a lot of really good advice. He's easy to listen to, great stories. Go figure, he's a storyteller. He has great stories. But he has some really awesome stories that he shares about working at Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Some great advice he got from Colin Quinn. It's awesome. Let's get right to it. Here's my chat with the nicest man in the world, Adam Wade. You're from New Hampshire, originally, but you... Moved to New York City right out of college. Correct. And you did a bunch kind of right off the bat, right? Didn't you like become an NBC page and you yeah. had an internship with 20th Century Fox? Yes. And uh, you were a PA at Colin Quinn, the tough crowd with Colin Quinn. Mm-hmm. The, the That was a Comedy Central show. Yeah. yeah. And you also, did you start doing stand up? Right before all of that, or kind of at the same time? As oh, that? yeah, right when I moved here, I was doing open mics. There's a couple of places, Reverend Jen's Anti-Slam at Collective Unconscious in the Village, part of the Lower East Side, and then um, there was another, uh, it was Surf Reality, like Face Boys Open Mic, I was doing that Sunday nights, and then there was just like other small shows, Botanica Bar on Houston Street, that's still there. Uh-huh. Uh, that was one of my first shows I ever did. Yeah, there's just a lot. I mean, I I have like a journal of my first couple months here, and it was just amazing. I was just going to these open mics just everywhere. Mm -hmm. Music open mics. uh, There was a place called The Gaslight on 14th Street, and I think it's like 9th Ave or 10th Ave. Um, I think it's since closed down, but that's where like the Yankees used to hang out. Like I used to see David Wells in there all the time. Oh wow! But it was, uh, yeah, but it was and it was weird when you first moved in. You just see David Wells and like David <laughs> Cohen at the bar drinking. Um, that does seem like the funny thing when you first because I have I haven't really experienced this since. But that first little bit of time that I lived here, I did see a bunch of famous people immediately. I was at a TJ and Dave show and Amy Sedaris sat right in front of me, and it's just like, wait, what? Yeah, Amy Sedaris is probably one person that I've seen the most. Like, Always like in the in the village, like she's oh, always yeah. like. I mean, I don't want to out where she lives because I, I don't know. But I, I, I t- typically I've seen her probably like five or six times. Uh-huh. She has like very distinct glasses. Oh, it's yeah. always like it always is like very. Uh, yeah, she's she's got like the New York, like she's walking. But I, like you know, you're like oh yeah, it's Amy Sedaris. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. I uh, have only seen her the one time and I got to talk to her and she's one of my favorites. So it was. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Uh, she's nice great to... in uh, Mandalorian, too. I mean, I, so good I, on that. Yeah, she's yes. so good. On, like, I mean, really, it's like when she's on, it like, makes the show. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, I like the show, but like. Yeah, I like the show she, and Baby Yoda's great, but I mean, she crushes she, she, on that She show. steals every scene she's in, yeah. Yeah, she really does, and and I I love that they keep bringing her back. And she's I saw yeah, that she's in the smart, uh, yeah. next season. That she's in the next season, so she's so great. And I when when I like when you like someone as much as you like Amy Sedaris, you want to be able to tell them, hey, you're really yeah, great. Yeah, so yeah. I was glad that I had the opportunity to tell her. I'm sure she appreciates it too. She yeah. did. She came across like she did. We had a nice chat right before TJ and Dave show. Speaking of like Dave Pasquese was on Boba Fett and he was yeah crushed on there. Yeah, he like, was great on that. They like using improvisers and yeah. <laughs> people from the totally. Chicago comedy scene on yeah. those two shows. But then, you know, John Favreau is yeah. one of the people yeah, Second involved City himself. Yeah. yeah. But you were here and you start doing stand up and that early in your stand up you were also you were using guitar, but I don't were you doing songs or were you doing like what some comics do where they're just playing a little background music while they're no talking? no it was songs there's all okay. songs so, yeah, I, I, I can't chew gum and talk at the same time you know like <laughs> like trying to you know and like when dimitri martin how was around when he started doing it but um mm-hmm. i think john zach alfanakis did it the best i mean he, he, he really was just he, well, he, yeah. i mean there's just like i mean i saw dimitri martin do it a couple of times and it was good but like no one could do, I mean, you know, I think it's uh, the Purple Onion. Uh, uh, it might have been like the first Netflix comedy special. I mean, Zach Alton, I mean, just so good. I mean, mm-hmm. and he'd be on Conan. He was on Conan a couple of times when I was the page. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the page down there, and he was just like, just killed. I mean, I just never seen anything like it, you know. Yeah. And then I, I started going to, uh, uh, I performed a couple of times actually on it, but it was eating it. Um it was a really uh, a show. Like, I think there was like a producer from Comedy Central, and there was another producer, um, and they would do this weekly show you know, on Monday nights, and they would have like all big names, all mm-hmm. big, like all like all turn like Jenny Rothfall all the time, but like they'd have other people, and like when he was on, he was just so good. Like exactly, yeah. it was. He I don't was know. Really it was incredible like, stand up. Yeah. Yeah, he, he really, he really, really was. I've never seen like. Like an audience react. I mean, I'm sure that that's how like audiences reacted to like Robin Williams or whatever. But I mean, I'm not a big laugher. I'll enjoy stuff, but I just I, I'm not a big laugh. I would like cry. I just laughed so, oh, so wow. much. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you got to see a lot of really great stuff as soon as you moved. Because when you get yeah. to do the be, have an internship like you did or the NBC page, you get to see a lot of stuff. And you got to appear on tough crowd a couple of times and you made some appearances on late night as well uh how did that come about how did you end up getting to appear on those shows i mean fortunately with um with conan um you know i was the page there and when you're like the desk page you're basically on the floor with everybody and you have like 200 duties like in the day and you know and and i hate to say but like you got to do them right you know, or like you can mess up once, but you can't keep messing up. Um, so it was like a really stressful job. And I love like every minute of you go in there and from like the, the beginning of the day, you go in there and you're setting up, you know, dressing rooms, you're setting up, like if there's a musical guest, you're setting that up. You're just working with so many people. And 
Uh, one thing is I'd always work with the casting department whenever, you know, Conan had a lot of bits and there was a lot of extra, not extras, but like characters. Um, mm -hmm. and a lot of them were, um, uh, improvisers. I remember like, like, I'm, you know, I met Billy Merritt, um, you know, just a lot of them. Teddy Kaluka was on uh, murders in the building. Uh, he was like the doorman. I became very good friends with him. Oh, um, he's an old yeah. improviser. Um, I, no, but he was one of the, he was one of the, he always played like a, a, like a janitor. Uh huh. Or a referee, but there was all this. Michael Delaney was always on the oh, improviser. Wow. Michael Delaney, um, and uh, yeah, there was there was there was a lot. There was a lot that were just constantly being cast, and you'd mm -hmm. meet them, and uh, and they were just nice. I mean, like Billy Merritt was like really nice. And I think Andrew yeah, Zagunda really nice. uh, ended up be, he was an improviser with with Billy you know, on one of the teams, but he uh, he ended up becoming a writer or phone. But he like just like you'd see them all the time, but. Um, you know, one of my jobs is I'd always have to get everything signed by them and, um, you know, their contracts and stuff like that. So I was always working with talent, uh, with casting. Um, so, you know, they, fortunately they, you know, they knew I was doing comedy. I, I know they came to a couple of my shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were just very supportive people. Uh, the, oh, whole, cool. the, the, the whole staff included. Um, I remember there's a, a, a great writer for them, uh, Kevin Dorff. Uh, yeah. He was in Second City. I mean, he's he's a legend. And, he uh, was the bartender on the Joe's sketch for people who remember that. Yeah, yeah, and he and he. Um, I believe. I was on a uh, in a in a uh, you know I used to drive the passenger van for them uh, when when they would do remotes, and like one day, like he was just looking through the Village Voices, like, "Hey, you got a show tonight?" Because I was doing a show at the Spiral Lounge on Houston Street, and he saw it. It was just. It was just like a very nice, you know, these simple, simple things, but like they yeah. knew, you know, he's like, I'm trying to make it. I don't even know if he came, but it was like, it was like really neat. And then yeah. um, a bunch of the uh, Jordan Schlansky was on, was on Conan. Like he was my drummer in my band, the Adam Wades. And it was like, Wait, it was like the music. Yeah. Yeah. We had like a band. <laughs> Wait. Yeah. I had like a you band. You had a band, band number one. And then secondly, Jordan Schlansky was your drummer. He's my drummer. Yeah. And Roy Herskovitz, who was like the, um, you know, like the music booker uh, for Conan was like uh, my guitarist. And wow. And Tiny Addies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was like our band. Like, and, but it was probably Adam Waits. It, it, you know, it was like three or four shows, four or five shows we probably did. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. So, so yeah. So I'm sure someone listening who's familiar with Jordan Schlansky yeah, yeah, yeah. on the show. And, and it's not a he... bit. It's not a bit. That's how he is. He's, he's an odd guy. He really like is just the, that way. But he's like, I, you know, I mean, he's well-meaning, but it was weird. Like the exactly, first concert, yeah. He, the first concert we had, um, show we did, like it, the, the drum set didn't have uh, cymbals, and he almost had a meltdown. And then, like, the next show, he literally, and I think he paid out of pocket. He just... He, rented like a full drum set and they like delivered it to the venue with like i mean he had like it was like van hale and drum set um, <laughs> but uh yeah yeah and there was he a good drummer all... yeah he's very good he was very good he was worth it i can I see him playing... being really really all about being on time on time yeah yeah he was a very very he was very he was very I, he's like i said it, it's not a bit he's just like a very eccentric but very like serious guy yeah very um, technical yeah, but he was very good i mean i'd love to say oh no and any and, and he was awful but he was like a really good drummer like really good <laughs> yeah oh that's wild i didn't know that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah we, we had chosen like half the, you know not a half but i mean a lot of the conan staff would come um 
they were just nice. I, I, yeah. It's one of those things we talk about, like the magnet and just nice people. Like Conan's show, um, and it's a credit to him and, um, you know, uh, his executive producer. They they hired just a lot of real, yeah. And he was a good guy too. Just a lot of very serious guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 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 but sweet, um, just, mm-hmm. they hired like really good people. They, I mean, that staff was just, um, just really, really kind from, uh, you know, every, every like researchers, uh, oh, cool. you know, yeah. segment producers, uh, to just very, very nice the writers, people. you yeah. know, they knew your name, they asked questions, uh, you know, and then they had the camera cameras, the stage managers, uh, just really, really good people. Uh, yeah, I was cool. lucky. That's really nice to hear because, like, you know, Conan's my hero. So to hear that, like, and I and I admire so many people who were involved with that show. Brian Stack, someone yeah. else that I love, and also like a super, Brian Stack. super nice guy. Brian Stack, I'll tell you one thing about Brian Stack. Never forgot a name. If I bumped him into the street, I know he, and like, first person to come downstairs, like, the second day I was there, like, hi, Adam, how you doing? I mean, it's, you say the nicest guy, I'm the nicest. He's been like he, I've spoken to him uh, a few times, and he really is. And every person, like honestly, he's really one of the greats of late night television history. Yeah, yeah, his, like he really truly is like someone that has to be mentioned in that category. And he is so nice that it's kind of how kind he is that is that is the reputation that precedes him almost more so than how in- incredible he is at comedy. Oh, and the characters he's had, too. I mean, the yeah. characters just on the Conan Legendary. Legendary yeah. characters on Conan. And and on late in late night history, he has some of the best, like regardless of post. Yeah. Just a fantastic guy. Two two other guys I need to mention are uh, Brian McCann. McCann's super great, yeah. And John Glazer. John Glazer, those yeah. two guys. Uh, those two guys, I mean, you know, I was working there, like, you know, when they were... And just really sweet when I was finished being a page and it was like between getting the job at home, uh, a tough crowd with Colin but also like I was always driving the van by uh, Jason Chalemi, who was the remote producer. He would always hire me. So it was mm-hmm. like, you know, I'd, I'd work, I was working weekends, like at NBC sports. And then he would call me, uh, like, I was almost like on a call, like a doctor. He'd say like, Adam, we need a van tomorrow. And you know, I was ready to go. So I'd work probably like two to three days a week at Conan. And then I'd work weekends at NBC sports. But whenever we did remotes, and I mean, I remember this is almost 20 years ago, but I, I remember like it was yesterday. I, the first question I asked is, who's the writer on, on, on the shoots? And when he said, uh, Brian uh, or John Glazer, like I knew I was going to get a free lunch. Because uh, uh, we'd always go, because we'd always, because they all, even if it was like a freak, they're like, you know, I'm hungry, let's go to McDonald's. So I, I'd always, I'd always get to get like McDonald's for lunch. So it was, I was, and and they kind of knew it. It might have been a bit after a while, like let's just make sure Adam eats. But it was just, you know, I I mean, it meant a lot to me at that time. You know, I mean, so I'm like getting getting work and getting a meal. And, oh, that's uh, I like said, whenever I, when, whenever I see story. John Glaze, I always bring it up, and, and like it sometimes we did a show together around Main Street with with ESPN, mm-hmm. and it was a uh, show with uh, Ben Schwartz, Audrey Plaza. There's wow. some big names on it before they, you know, before, before they, they hit big. it. And it yeah. was like Kenny Main, Kenny Main, uh, oh, Kenny Main, funny guy. Yeah, and no, and John Glazer was on that. We were driving, and like you know, every time I see him, I always say, oh, "Thank you for the burgers." Yeah, maybe, <laughs> I may, maybe I, I should have upped my game. But I was always just very, very grateful. I was always very, very grateful. Yeah. Oh gosh, that's 
I re- those are all really sweet stories. It's like heartwarming to hear. It's like, oh, yeah. there, there are people like this in the world and they're still out there. Okay, good to know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and they would ask you questions. How you doing? Like, what? And the other thing is when you're driving, when you're driving like a van like that, and you know, you're, you know, it's facing, you don't want to be driving a van, but you're doing it. And you know, because it's almost tougher. And I know like some people say you're better on getting a job outside of entertainment and then doing improv at night. But like, I, there's no right or wrong, but like, you know, for me, it was just so like, you're so close, but you're still so far. Right. Um, but, but, but they, but they were very, very encouraging. I remember there was a stage hand um, that would work Conan and uh, SNL. His name was John Homer. He was a Vietnam vet. He was just this short, uh, bald Italian guy with like a heart of gold. And I remember one time we were driving and he'd always sit in the front seat with me. And then the writers and everybody, and the, you know, the cast, and they'd be in the back. Uh, and, and he said, one day, Adam, he goes, we're all going to be working for you. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was yeah. just like, you know, I mean, and it's a stage hand saying that. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, and everybody just kind of nodded. It was, it was a nice, um, it was like a real, like, those were the type of people that I was working with there. And, you, you know, mm-hmm. you. So maybe it is a little frustrating that you're driving the van and, but like, you know, you got to pay a due somehow, you know? And, and for yeah. me, like, I, I cherish those moments. I cherish those moments. I would love that. I mean, that's the, I, I keep trying to get a job at late show and it keeps yeah. not happening, but you know, I would rather be in the room, even yeah. if I'm the one who's taking notes and what they want for lunch, because at least I'm getting exposed because that's yeah. what I want to see. I want to see behind the scenes what it looks like to produce these shows. Yeah. And I want to I want to get in that room at least so I can see that much. So I can. Well, when I got out of when, when I got out of being a, out of being a page of Conan, and this might be right or wrong, so I, I but but this is how I took it. Was that um, Conan was so good at frameworking his show. Okay, and and the acts. I mean, this was his writers and Mike Sweeney, who at the time was like the head writer, and and Jeff Ross. But like they would framework the show, and the tighter that was, and with the guests, if he had that base and that foundation, then the genius would come out. Then like these improvised lines would come out, and then this, you know, it it was almost like him reacting to the audience. And, but it it was about that connection, and uh-huh. that's where his genius was. And and it didn't. Yeah. And what I learned quick was it wasn't like having Harrison Ford on the show was boring. It really, really was. But having like uh, Carolyn Ray was going to be awesome because he was comfortable. He, <laughs> he wasn't doing any of the heavy lifting. It was the rapport back and forth. Or Mark right. Maron when Mark Maron would be on the oh, show. Oh yeah, think, who like, had like forty appearances on that show. Yeah, I mean it was just gold. It was gold. Yeah, and um, you know it, it's just funny how that. Uh, even like Heidi Klum was really good. It was it was just people that were fun, but it was a lot of times it was like the Kevin Bacon or Tim Robbins. Like it was just very stiff. It was just it was yeah, very, they're very not loose. as loose. Like they could like I've been around because I was an extra in a movie of Kevin Bacon's, and um, he's very professional and he's kind, um, but he's he's also chill to the point where it's like demystifying of a big star. He was so yeah. chill. Um, and so like, well, you, you know, think of him, no, you think of him, I don't, and I know it's like six degrees of separation, but like, I mean, like his, 
IMDb. You can just scroll and scroll and scroll. <laughs> yeah. And then as, and as you're looking, you're like, I, I forgot he was in this. I forgot he right. was in this. I forgot. So it's like, I mean, if there's like a Forrest Gump type character in Hollywood, he, he's kind of like, him, it, yeah. like a real one. Yeah. He's been in so much stuff. Like how, and, I forgot he was in Halloween. Was it Halloween or Friday the 13th? He was in like the I original think it was, Halloween. Ooh, it was one of the horror I think movies. It's, it's not Halloween. Because that's my favorite horror movie. And he's not in the first It's probably one. Friday the 13th. It's, it's the probably Friday the 13th. Yeah. And Johnny Depp's in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, he's in a ton of stuff. And I, I love Harrison Ford. So no, I'm not like putting him down. But my old mentor went to college with him and knew him well. And my mentor always joked that he was such a curmudgeon even back in college. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was like, and he loved Harrison Ford. He still loved him. But like, he was just like, oh, he's a like look he's a curmudgeon oh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like he's a he he doesn't want a, a lot of fuss <laughs> like, well you're bumping into these people and you're seeing them and seeing how they react and for me the two the two best were around you know this was like around 2000 so i mean uh, this was like 22 years ago but larry david who was like curb it was i think curb <laughs> was going into its second season yeah. nobody knew who he was i mean and, and for me it was like these things, like I, I would always talk to the researchers, like who's on next and more. It was like, I think Google had just started, but like you didn't really. So I'd be asking right. questions and it was like, you know, like all I, was, like, all I knew about Larry, Larry David was that he sold his syndication rights for like 300 million. So he's worth like 300. That, that was like, and then when I met him in the lobby, he was just very, he was like, wearing what he always wears like that. And like, we just went upstairs and we were just talking and like, I didn't really think about the comedy and inside for that. Like you just sounded like I was talking to like an uncle and you're just so nice. Yeah. And, but all I could think of is like, he's got to be high maintenance and he's worth this kind of money. But so, and, and, and some people work and some of the guests yeah. work. And I just said, I go, can is, you know, and I'd always overdo it, Jason, because I'm trying to make that impact. I'm like, is there anything I can get for you? Is that, and he goes, Adam, get me a turkey sandwich uh, on whole wheat bread with, with, with mustard. And I'm like, is there a special place he's like just go to the local deli that's it and he was just like so and and when he got it back and i had the name tag so please when i but when i when i would bring it when i brought it back to him he's like thank you adam and then at the end of the day i walked him to his i i was supposed to walk him to his car he didn't have a car so i'm walking him outside or maybe maybe the car was out there but like i, I walked him downstairs there was no paparazzi or anything and he's just yeah. like adam i go do you want me to walk you to the car he goes adam I got it from here. And you just want like, so it's just like, it's like that, like probably the most influential person in the last 25 years. For sure. Co-created Seinfeld and then became the star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, a huge and show. just to be a, a mensch was, was great. And then the right. other, speaking of mensch, the other, I mean, and I have to bring these two people up because, of, you know, um, Henry Winkler. Lo, oh, he is, he might be the nicest man yeah, he might, he might top everybody. He might top right, everybody. honestly. My brother has spoken to him, and it was like legendary how nice he was. Tony Shalhoub is also that nice. Yeah, Henry Winkler. But you know, I'm the lowest of the. I mean, I mean, I'm a page on the show, which uh-huh. like Thirty Rock. I mean, you're the lowest of the low, mm-hmm. and here I am, and like like sitting in his dressing room for like 20 minutes, Henry Winkler, and he's asking me a million questions. What? I mean, it's almost like I'm going to get in trouble here. Because he, he I, I have like he a million other things to, to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, like, what do you want to do? And, and it was like sincere. And, he, and you know the nice other thing man, is, yeah. that I still remember, he was just listening. He was like paying attention, like more, like like looking at me and paying attention. The follow ups, um, 
It was just well, yeah. uh, unbelievable. And he's the fun. Well, that's why. I mean, that's. I mean, it was the fun. You know, I mean, he yeah. was. He embodied cool for a generation, yeah. and could have carried that into his persona, where he's just like, "Oh, I don't have to listen to anybody else. I don't no. have to talk no. to this page." But he is. No. He, he treats everyone. Everyone I've heard talk about him. It's yeah. the same description. He's just my super first nice. lunchbox was a Happy Days lunchbox. So I mean, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, I mean, it, it was huge. I mean, it was yeah. huge. Oh, it used gosh. to be like the other thing is, and I mean, I think you're going to like YouTube, but there was like a Fonz, a Happy Days, like in the Fonz, like cartoon, like too. Yeah, like, you know, they so, were I mean, really milking yeah. that. <laughs> oh yeah, they milked it. But yeah, I mean, but well before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there was the Happy yeah, Days yeah, Universe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the yeah, people exactly. don't understand how many shows yeah. that that one yeah. show launched. Yeah. <laughs> what was the funniest thing that happened while, when you were around Conan or some somebody at Conan? Well, I, don't know, I, I think one of the most meaningful things was, you know, I, I mean, with Conan um, was, you know, a lot of times pages would leave when the show was over. With, with the, the show, they would do the show, everybody would wrap up for the night, and then they would, uh, you know, just close down the set and then. Conan's dressing room, which was like right where my page desk was, they would do like a postmortem. So you'd have all the producers and they would, you know, talk about how the show went. And then they would leave and then Conan would just play his guitar. And he'd play his guitar for about a half hour. So most of the time, when that, my pages would leave, you know, that we were on duty. But like, I, you know, I always wanted to overdo it. So I would stay until Conan left. Some nights it was like later. I mean, he played for three hours. Well, like, you would always want that. And he'd, he'd acknowledge and, um, you know, it, it was nice. like, I, you know, good night, Adam. Not always that like, conversation, but we had a few. And, that, and yeah. that, it was just, it was just, um, he was very, very nice to me, you know? Yeah. And then the other thing is, Mike Sweeney was the head writer. Yeah. Uh, spoke with me, you know, because he knew I was performing. And I went to, to him for some advice. And he said to me, you know, Adam, uh, how many times do you get up on stage a week? I go, I, I get up on stage like once or twice a month. And he said, he goes, Adam, like you gotta, no. he goes, the best advice I can give you about stand up is get not, you gotta get on stage as much as you can. Mm. And, I, and that was like really, you know, and then I started doing a lot more, you know, I yeah. started doing a lot more. So, so that as far as like funny stuff, I mean, there's just a lot of uh, so, probably too much. <laughs> so like, I mean, yeah, I mean, like David Hasselhoff was on one time. He was, he was doing uh, Jekyll and Hyde, I believe at the time uh, on Broadway. And um, my job was Conan would do his monologue. They would do a desk piece. They would throw the commercial and then they would come back and then he would introduce his first guest. So the band would play and my cue was when I'd hear the band, that's when I would go to the dressing room, pick the person up, walk them into the back. You know, there was a stage manager there, Steve. I'd walk to him and then I would go. And by days, he was just like socializing and, I'm like, Mr. Hasselhoff, you know, I, we need to, we need to go, you know? And, um, he made like a big thing. He's like, Hey, listen, like, I'm like, the band has been playing now. Like, like, I need to bring you in here, you know? And he's like, I never ran in the bathroom. I'm like, like, you, you gotta go. And he's like, something like, so I could talk to you. I could go to the bathroom. I'm like, what is it going to be or something? And I go the bathroom's to down, down the hall. And, and like, he, he did it like in front of like everybody. And I didn't lose my cool. And, uh, uh, and like, everybody was like, kind of, um, you know, supportive and like, good, like you did a good, cause again, the nice guy thing, but the, like, you, 
you, you didn't overreact or whatever, yeah, yeah. but I mean, it was, but it was, you know, it was a huge cluster of, you know, and then that, I was worked up about it because I was mm-hmm. almost like a perfectionist. You want to do a good job and then I'm going to get the blame for this. Right. So they all kind of crowded me, every, but even some of the people that weren't as nice made sure, you know, Adam, don't worry about it. And um, the next morning they had folded, uh, and I think this was like the camera guys, the lighting guys, the sound guys, but they had gotten a um, David Hasselhoff as Jekyll and Hyde t-shirt. So they must've been giving those away. Then they put it like in a little package. So when I got back to work that next day, it said like the Adam from David. And I'm like, who the hell is David? <laughs> and I opened it up and it was, it was like the t-shirt. I mean, it was, it was uh, David Hasselhoff. It, it wasn't like as Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> that's funny <laughs> yeah i mean they were good they were they were they were, they were kind kind people yeah. yeah so mike sweeney who's great he tells you to get up on stage do stand up as much as you can and i know that when you were at tough crowd colin quinn suggested that you drop the guitar part and yeah. just yeah. straight stand up yeah. is that how you eventually get into storytelling yeah yep it's weird how it just kind of fell into place where he said that, and then I started doing stand-up shows. Like, you know, I was getting booked on a lot of shows, like in back of bars. There's a really good network that we have, and, and I knew a lot of people, you know, because I'd been here for about two years, and I was performing. I mean, I was when I was a page, it kind of slowed down, but I mean, I, I, I knew there was almost like this thing, Jason, where there's like, there's a show at what was the, right near the museum or sucks now, but it was the Gershwin Hotel. I don't know oh, what it yeah, is yeah. now, but it was almost like a hostel. And uh, they had a couple of shows there. Patrick Borelli, who's a Jimmy Fallon writer. Mm-hmm. I had a show there. Christian Finnegan had a show there, Portable Comedy. So I would do, uh, Julia Sharp had a show there. So I had, and uh, Mike Birch and Brecken had a show there on Saturday night. So I would basically get booked on all these shows when it was like every three, two or three months I'd get booked. You know, so I, so it was like, I had two or three mm-hmm. shows. I'd have like at least a show a week, maybe two shows a week. Um, but it was through all these different, and you know, you'd have to keep following up with emails. It wasn't, there was no like real social media. So it was just always emailing people. But I had almost had like a schedule. Okay, it's time to email Patrick. It's time to email. And they were just nice enough to book me. The problem happened after um, Colin Quinn gave me that advice. I no longer had the guitar. And then I found out, I mean, many of them, if you go to like a stand-up show and just stand up after stand up after stand up, like you want like a like right. a even if you're not that good, like a musician just kind of breaks it up a little bit. You play a couple play a couple songs or something, uh-huh. funny songs, and it really adds it makes it more of like a variety show. So when I was showing up without the guitar, like I wasn't getting emails back. You know what I'm saying? I see. Like it's like, oh boy, like <laughs> I don't know exactly the time period, but it seemed like most of the comedy community was not accepting people with. Yeah, I mean, for me at the time, I, it was. I mean, and, and and maybe I was naive too, but I mean, I was actually getting hooked mainly because I was a music actor. But it wasn't even like parodies. I mean, it was, every, it was you know, and, and then when right, I found yeah, out, yeah. like, I couldn't do parodies too. But I stopped getting booked and it was tough. And I can understand. I mean, like, I was a decent musical comedy guy but i was a terrible stand-up mm-hmm. you know so i watched those here's what i was going to ask you about your stand-up versus your storytelling like stylistically were you more of a storyteller type of stand-up yeah no, i just told stories i mean colin quinn's advice was just just work on your stories 
So my, my musical comedy, when I did Jason, was I, I tell a story, like a shoot, like a two minute, it's almost like an Armando Diaz experience. I tell like a short story. And then instead of improvises, I would play like a song that goes with it. But then like I lost I the guitar, like I lost a lot of confidence. You know what I mean? Because that will always, that was always like the ah. and there was no balance there. There was oh, just like the setup. Okay. It was almost like the setup. The story was the setup. The song was the punchline in like longer form. And then without the guitar, okay. it was like, it was like, okay, we're waiting for it. And then like, where do I go from here? Yeah, and I kind of feel like Colin's bread and butter is kind of a storyteller style yeah, of yeah, totally. performing. So he knew what he was talking about when he <laughs> identified that in you. Yeah, I mean, it was just really, for me, I, I found the thing called the mock, where the mock, it was like a poetry slam with stories. And it was first person narrative. Anybody could put their name in the hat. And they'd give you a theme two or three weeks before or a month before. So you get to work on it. And what I, what I found these audiences, unlike comedy open mics or, or comedy shows, they were just listening. It was more of like a literary crowd, but kind of like a hip crowd. Mm -hmm. So you're getting their attention. You just weren't getting the laughs that maybe people expect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, when I try to be funny, the math people never really laugh. But if I, people go on to those shows. But if I was just myself, I mean, that's why it just really transformed right there. Like, okay, it's like, I'm not, I'm not telling okay. jokes. It's more about the reactions. It's more about these things. Sometimes it's just like, the, like a line mm -hmm. that you ad lib. I mean, that's why it was like, I, I didn't do a lot of improv early on in the early 2000s, but it was, a lot of the stories, it was a bullet point. I was just kind of improvising the story in a lot. I mean, it was a true story. I see. But I was just, I, I wasn't, when I say improvising, like I wasn't memorizing it from start to finish. I was just telling them, you know what I mean? So, like, right. And I was going in different directions. I'd go on little tangents while I was on stage, but it wasn't about being funny. It was about just connecting to the audience. And I get a, I would get a lot of laughs from them. And my confidence started building to the extent where I would do comedy shows and the audience weren't reacting like that. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, after a while, I was just like, I'm strictly doing like the moth. The moth started expanding to go to a couple times a week. And it was just worth it. And um, and then I, I really yeah. built it up. So when I was doing comedy shows, um, it got to a point where I was a lot more comfortable just telling a story. But it, it was, it, it took about a year or two at least, okay. maybe three, uh, just to build up the confidence to, to just tell stories. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. There's an interesting thing with storytelling because, like, when I like, I've seen you tell stories a bunch of times, and it's all engaging, it's all entertaining. They're funny moments, they're also poignant moments. It's all very natural. It is sort of like you know, you're saying, like, it, it comes across more yeah. like you're just telling the story. It's not like sometimes I see people who are trying to be a storyteller type of stand up, and they have sort of infused some sort of something that's sort of melodramatic or maudlin and it and you it kind of reads as intentionally going for a dramatic moment but i don't i don't get that when i watch your sets that have something pointed about it it seems it all's very natural you know with stand-up you really kind of are trying to go for the laugh in improv you're trying to be funny but you're not necessarily trying to go for the laugh is storytelling kind of a balancing act of the two, maybe? Or like, not a balancing act, but a, a something that's sort of in the middle. I'm not trying to be funny the way, you know, you're not trying to be funny with improv. What is the thing you are going for then? I think whether it's a comedy stage or a storytelling stage, you got to get up there and you got to firmly know what you're trying to do. What is your objective? And if, if I'm doing a comedy show, 
Uh, I'll probably do a more fine. And I, and I haven't done, I mean, I've learned this. I mean, like I've done serious stories at, or more serious stories at stand-up shows and it hasn't gone over well. Um, some of you, so what I'll try to do is try to have some type of balance and it might not even be funny moments or, or funny lines, but more like lighter moments. Um, you know, sometimes you're like, just screw it. I'm just going to try it, you know? Um, but I, I think it's more about the, what I've learned is it's more about the connection with the audience and, and what your objective is. Um, I remember there was a show I did at Union Hall a couple of years ago before the pandemic and you know, there was like Joe List was on the lineup, uh, Mike Kaplan. I think it was at Mike Kaplan's birthday uh, party, and there was like a show. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these stand-ups killed. I mean, they they killed like you wouldn't believe. In the little Union Hall basement, I mean, the laughter was like bouncing off the walls. And and I went up and mm-hmm. I told the story, and it was kind of like it was it was a little balanced, but it might have been a little sadder than than funny. And I got some laughs, you know, um, but I wasn't pushing for mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. But my objective going in was just do your thing. And when it was over, I was just beating myself up like we always do after shows, anybody. Like, you know, yeah. because I was jealous because I wasn't getting the laughs that those guys were getting. You know, and, and the room was quieter. Uh-huh. And, and, and I was just really, I was jealous. I was envious. And I didn't storm out of there, but like, I just left feeling, you know, it's a long, it's a long train ride. It's a long subway right. ride, then path train ride back to Hoboken. I mean, it's about, you know, and right. um, my friend at the time, Chris Brunel was bartending at, at Union Hall and I went to college with him and, um, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, he called me or I think he texted me like the next morning and he just said, are you okay? Cause he, he's. He saw me, I had my little birch ginger beer, whatever there. And then I, I left. I said, you know, I just, Chris, I've been doing this a long time. It was a comedy show. I, I really worked hard on my story. And, um, you know, I just jealous. I didn't, it didn't go over like I wanted it to. And I didn't like get the laughs like those guys got. And his response was like, listen, Mike, you got to think about what you want. And you're, and you're absolutely wrong about what you're just saying, because he said, when you were done and the show was over, the bar stayed open for another hour and people, everybody that was going to the bar and, and he's not a bullshitter either, you know? And he said, but like everybody that was going to the bar was talking about your story. They weren't talking about the jokes. They were talking and he goes, what do you, and he emailed me, he goes, what did you, what was your objective? And he goes, and he goes, what is your full objective? And my objective is whenever I'm doing something, whether it's at the magnet doing like the, the, the improv there, you know, doing my stories for the uh, ADX. Well, people remember that or, or will it stay with you? And it, it, it's like, what, what do you want? And that's what I want. You know, I mean, the, the, the greatest thing to ever happen to me in my years of performing is, and this connects to that story. I'm on a train going into Brooklyn to do some show in the back of a bar like way out and nowhere. And, you know, that show that ended up being two people there besides the seven performers. And I'm on this train and this woman's staring at me and I'm like, you know, all right, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. And she, and I look back and she's staring at me again. I'm like, I, I don't know this person. And she starts walking towards me and she goes, excuse me, I don't mean to bother you. I don't know your name, but I remember you at this venue and, and you performed and you told the story about your cat peaches. And she goes, every time I see peaches, I think like I'm at the, the supermarket or I oh, see wow. it, I, I think of your story. And, and Jason, she 
told me the story, like, you know, gave me like a, like a, like a two minute summary of the story. And I'm like, when did you see this? She's like about seven or eight years ago. Wow. But and then like the, the next stop, she's out. That's my stop. She got out. I didn't even know her name. And then it was like, my head was spinning. And it was like, that's, that's your goal. That is like, it was like, she given me a bottle yeah. of gold. I'm not a rich person. I, I, you know, I, I like, I, I've done everything I've wanted to do. I mean, I, you know, wish I could be a lot more successful like anybody, but like, I'll take it when I have. I've been able to meet and work with some mm-hmm. awesome, awesome people. But my objective is not to be famous or, or overly successful in entertainment. It's to be able to produce work that people are going to think about and remember. And if someone like that, that's, yeah. that's as, I don't need to win an Emmy and I'm, I'm happy for my friends that do. So I want to state that. But uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think they'd be able to understand how great something like that is. You know what I mean? You know. That's true. Honestly, it's I know it's a big moment to be able to, you know, oh, obviously yeah, winning I mean, an Emmy yeah. is, is nice, especially if it's your first one. Like, I get that. But I'll tell you something about Oscars and Emmys and all that. I don't remember what won Best Picture last year. I don't remember who won Best Actor. But there are actors that I'm like, oh, they won an yeah. Oscar. And it was like, no, they didn't actually win. They were not. I don't want to. Well, know? I don't want to. I don't want to shit on that. <laughs> like, that won Emmys. Yeah. And I and I don't either. And I know that that's not what you want to do. But the point that I wanted to make was that's not really the thing that's tangible. The thing that's tangible, even though it's literally an award, it's I'm saying it's not as tangible as the experience you had or the experience of like I thought this actress was so good that I assumed she won an Oscar yeah, for this part. Like that to me is more meaningful. Than her I mean, better call winning. not winning any. I, I, they didn't win much. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like Steve Carell never got an Emmy yeah, for yeah. Michael Scott on The Office. But do you look back on The Office and go like, yeah, but it wasn't yeah. Emmy worthy? Like, no. You talk about it more and you talk about some other things that have won Oscar, you know, yeah. or yeah. Emmys and stuff. And it's and that that is similar to somebody telling you seven years later, I remember this story you told. And you think about it seven years later, but also it's like, all she's living in Brooklyn. All the entertainment yeah. stimuli that she's been bombarded with on social media, going to shows, this Ever or since. that. Like, like, like overwhelmed, <laughs> right. like right. drowning in, right. in stuff. And for her to remember that and remember it that well. Mm-hmm. For me personally, in my heart, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't. I really don't. I don't see how it could. I I mean, honestly, that to me, what I would identify in that story is that's the thing that inspired you to go into this to begin with. Not necessarily getting that attention from somebody. Yeah, you connected to them on that level. Yeah. Right. You connected with them. And that's what, like, when I watched stuff growing up, I was inspired. I had a spark from watching it, and I want to do work that has that spark and and, you, and, that's and, it. and also like you can't underestimate you know i said and, I, and then that night i did a show for two people you never know who's in the audience especially in this area and also like you like i said you have to have an objective like what is your objective but you can't judge the audience and who they are um like when i first started doing the mock i used to always think like well i'm gonna do well uh, i convinced myself you gotta do well because at least 35% of the audience are going to be nerds at these shows. And like, you're a nerd, so you're going to like, <laughs> yeah. so that's fine. And, and that's all you need. And I think that that was kind of a naive thing to think because in, in a lot of my stories about like the nerd that can't get the girl and the jock gets the girl. 
And then, and then in those stories, I could kind of nudge yeah, yeah. the jaw. I could kind of, you know, and, 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 you know, and I knew 35% <laughs> yeah. of the audience at least would enjoy that. You know what I mean? They could live vicariously through me for yeah. six minutes. And then what, what changed all that was after one show. And I really, that night, I really, it was at the New Eureka Cafe. I really gave it to the jock and they were laughing. And this guy came up to me after he's probably like in his mid thirties. And he's like, can I, and yet he wasn't wearing like a varsity jacket, but he was about six, two and wide. He looked like an ex football player. And he's like, can I talk to him? I'm like, oh, Jesus. Mm -hmm. He was, I was like growing up. I was that guy in your story that you were making fun of. I'm like, oh boy, where are we going here? And he's like, and I'll tell you, um, what you got to understand is this insecure and like, like that you were yeah. and, 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 you know, uh, uh, and he went on and on. He goes, I was like a million times more insecure than you ever thought you were. And I was the jock. I was prompting. I was wow. co-captain. So he goes, I had more in my head that a hundred times, a million times more than you ever thought you did. And we started talking and he's like, you know, I, I came out mm -hmm. two years ago. Here's my partner in the pie. I got introduced to his partner, nice guy. And he's like, Adam, he's like, you know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I bully, I bully kids like you in high school and stuff like that. But looking back, I wish I had a friend like Adam Wade in high school. And I started crying and he started crying. I wish oh, wow. I had a friend like you. He goes, I wish we could have just had a, it was almost like a John Hughes moment where I wish we could have had a, a, a conversation yeah. and just kind of dropped, you know, you being a nerd, drop me being a jock, and just being two kids in high school that had some problems, you know, and maybe it was, you know, uh, you know, who we were or identity or, uh, but like, I think we would have been able to support each other. And like, it was just a beautiful thing. And for me, it became 35% of the audience to like 98%, 99%, you know, and that other person who gives a crap, yeah. but it was just like, it just, just that right, conversation. Right. It opened it and it was just like, That's you don't know who yeah. you're talking to. You don't know who you could be helping or just, you know, and, right. and, and a lot of times now with storytelling, That's it's so like true. dialogue. It's telling the story, seeing if it sticks, and then going to the bar after or going to the back of the bar, having a conversation with the person and, you know, them asking, continuing to ask questions or talking about what they're related to the story. Yeah. Um, it's about relationships. It's about relationships, you know, and, and connecting, you know. Absolutely. And it is really interesting that when you were telling that story, I was like, I wonder how something like that would go over at the ESPYs because, yeah. you know, a lot of them, they might be on the Mount Rushmore, whatever sport they're on, but they also might identify with like, they, they might bristle at that material. And then you told that story about the jock being like, hey, I was the jock. I mean, Jason, I, I, saw, I saw the last dance and I've read a lot of books on Jordan, the dream team, everything. I would not trade my life for Michael Jordan's. You know, I, you know I'm not, I, I, I mean, I know, that right? guy has a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, YouTube is Hall of Fame yeah. speech. I mean, it's often, it was a tragedy with his father and everything. And, um, you know, he's dealt with a lot yeah. of things. Yeah, something that was really eye-opening when I became an adult and started hearing more and more about the experience women yeah. uh, have in this world. Part of the reason that I understood where they were coming from was actually something Michael Jordan said that I heard when I was still in college. He was talking about how when he walks through the lobby of a hotel, so anywhere in the world, it's like he, he said, it's like he can feel every eyeball on him. And I was like, 
oh, that's really interesting. That must be really hard to have that attention on you. So then when women were talking about being catcalled and guys ogling them, I was like, yeah, well, I know from Michael Jordan that that's a tough experience. And women walking through this world are walking through this world like Michael Jordan walks through that lobby. Like, that's got to be tough. We really have so much more to learn. Yeah, one part of the Dream Team book was, you know, like, they noted it was like Jordan's like best friend was his driver. Like, and, 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 you know, I mean, you know, it's just, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a lonely, it's a lonely was, life yeah. you know, for, for these, you know, some of these jocks, you know what I mean? It's, and then who, who, and do you know who your real friends are? You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I feel right. bad to these billionaires, but what I'm, what I'm, what I'm saying is <laughs> right. that I, I wouldn't trade my life for, for the, for this. And, and, and their insecurities. I mean, you know, I mean. Yeah. The insecurities, like, you know, yeah, Elvis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They say the Beatles, I mean, at least they had each other. Elvis didn't have anyone. Exactly. Yeah, I saw Ringo talk about how Bob Dylan, they 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 met Bob Dylan and they were talking about how like weird celebrity is and, and being famous and all the attention. And Bob Dylan said, at least you had e you have each other. And um, they left that meeting and were like, holy crap, like he has to do this alone. You, you have to be a very unique kind of person to be able to handle that. Yeah. Did you watch Get Back on Disney Plus or not? No. Wow. I I, I, I mean, I, I there's so much I didn't know. And there's so much, like, even if, if they wrote a book based yeah. on that, yeah, there's so much, like, they, I, it just wouldn't click. But just being, like, a fly on the wall, watching all that, I just found it. I found every minute of that just fascinating. Just fascinating. Yeah. It was very fascinating. Just that process and that I mean, dealing with each other. And, yeah, yeah. And just how they could come up with, like, some of the greatest lyrics and the greatest, like, just, like, pressure oh my god the pressure the pressure of like okay i wrote this song now write a great guitar riff for it you know it's like i gotta come up with a i don't know that's a that's tough business that's that's really tough business i want to know a little bit more about your storytelling process like i understand you know you're thinking well what's your purpose here when you're you know what was it you want to get across but when you were coming up with this or when you're trying to develop a story what what is that process like? Uh, it's a process, not an event. I mean, stories aren't birthed. I mean, just all around. <laughs> They're just just continuing to work and yeah. chip away, work and chip away. Think about what the real yeah. meaning is. How um, do you decide? How do you like decide what to do? A I mean, story for me, on? I have you know, it's almost like I have like a shoebox of ideas, and like if something happens, uh, you know, during the day that just kind of resonates with me for good or bad or whatever. I, I jot it down on an index down. I put it in or date it. I'm a, have it really organized. And then after a while, I just start looking, you know, if, if I'm doing an ADX and I'm doing some other type of show or, there, or uh -huh. there's a special show and this is the theme, I start looking through those cards uh, and I'll look and see, see if anything connects uh -huh. or an older story that connects um, in some way. And then I, I just kind of also like always kind of start from scratch and then just I'll, I get a blank sheet of paper, start putting together stuff. I'm more of a, a outline person as opposed to a, um, you just write out the story and, um, and then I, yeah, and then I just kind of oh, put it together. Okay. I, just, I listen to music, uh, like a lot, especially like if, the, if I remember something that happened like in fourth grade or, or fifth grade, I'll, I'll listen to music mm -hmm. from that time might watch a tv show tv show that i like from that time i just kind of it's more about 
it's less about the story at that moment and it's more about kind of just getting in touch with you know and, and if the story happened a month ago whenever you, you know it, but, but a lot of times I, I, yeah. I like to go back i mean you know a lot of times oh, oh yeah journal yeah, 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 nonstop. and so you can you go back yeah to, i look at some like stuff old, i mean like, a lot of times you know your journal for me it was your journal just to kind of just get some stuff out you know venting and uh it's, I think it's, yeah. for me, it's very difficult to tell a story about something that happened yesterday. You know, I, I, you need to give it some time. You kind of need to give it uh-huh. a little time, you know, especially if it's not like, you know, I mean, you get ghosted from a girl and you know, you're really upset. Like, you're not going to go up on stage the next night and talk about that. Like, you got to get started. You got to, you got to let it, you got to right. let it sit. You know, you're like, I thought she was the love of my life. But yeah. Where is she now? You know, then you get home and she texts you back. You know, you're like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just I, like you got to kind of give it some time. You got to give it some time. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, what an incubator. Yeah. So you teach storytelling. Is it two or three levels that you teach at Magnet? There's an, a regular storytelling class which anybody can take. And it's it's not an intro class. So many people are like, oh, I've done storytelling. Can I take your advancement? Take the regular class. You're going to get a lot on it. And it's very much the building blocks. So then when you take the advanced class that I teach, then you have that foundation of what I'm teaching. And then now you can put it to that class. Uh-huh. Then after that, or after the regular class, I have a solo show class where you can, um, it's not when the six weeks are over in the class show, you're able to present a solo show. It's you have, by the time you're finished the class and the class show, you have the ingredients now to put it on. You have everything. That's what that class is. It's just real. I have an idea. Jason has an idea. He wants to tell a solo show about, you know, New York and improv and what it means to you. Well, each day, each week, we're going to go through exercises for you to be putting things together. Uh, and you know, it's, it's very much a creativity class as it is a solo show class. And what's happening with that class is down. People are writing book proposals. You know, you're getting whatever you want out of it. You know, there's been, I think, three books now mm-hmm. sold from that class. Because they're putting together these ideas and these frameworks. And then if they have to pitch it, you know, they know they can pitch it because it, it, it's real and they've talked about it. So, um, yeah. So, so, yeah, so it's oh, so on show, but it's also, you know, what you want to make of it. You know, TV show, you can, you know, it, it, it's, it's become, and I don't know if we're going to, you know, if that title of the class is going to evolve, but it's really, really good. I mean, each week it's, it's experimental in the sense, you know, you're doing a different assignment. One week you might be telling a story from the solo show and, of what you, you know, that you might think it's going to be. Then you might be creating some, a piece of art and presenting it. It's, it's all these different types of things, mm-hmm. but all together when you're done, and I've had it, like students are like, I know I can put together a 20 to 30 minute solo show, or I know I can put together a book proposal and sell it. So it, it's, uh, it's been very, for, you're gonna, if you put in a little work, you're going to get a lot out of it. Look at that. And if you put a lot of work, the sky, sky's the limit. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. really inspiring even. I've been wanting to take it for forever. And I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. Get around. And I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. <laughs> and, if, and it's funny because a lot of people have said that and they take it. I mean, there's a gentleman right now, I think, you know, he's a technical theater, Chris Connors, and he's taken the class down. It's been years. And, you know, he, one week and he blew us away with the story. And, and, and I don't even think he knows how good it is. Like what, what he, what he talked about. It was, it was unbelievable. I mean it, and sincerely. Oh, but it's just like yeah. But he's been mm-hmm. waiting 
And he said to me, goes, now's the time I can take it. And, I, and I'd rather have that than like, I'm going to force, you know, you say, I'm going to force myself to take it next month. Take it when you're ready. Take it when you're ready. But the sky's the limit. Okay, cool. Well, at the end of episodes, I like to create something together. And I would like a little advice one this time. So if someone wanted to tell a story and, and you're going to advise them, what are some pitfalls that people need to sort of think about when, when developing a story just to avoid any, like, like whatever the common problems that can come up when trying to develop Especially in the development stages, don't overjudge yourself and don't give your idea, especially in the early stages, to someone that might not be giving you great feedback. And sometimes that's a loved one. But it's like, you know, oh, Jason, you're doing, you're doing a little story. Tell me your story. You know, if the tone is like that, stay the hell away from that. You know what I mean? So just, you know, when, <laughs> yeah, when, yeah. You, when, you're, when you're doing a first-person narrative story that's true about yourself, you're being extreme. When they talk about Brene Brown vulnerability, that's as vulnerable as you can get. Yeah. So why open yourself at that moment of creativity? To be squashed because it's creative. You're like when they well, yeah. listen. You're putting together a story. You know you're putting together. You're being creative. So by doing that, you're being very vulnerable. And if you end up showing it to the wrong person right there, I mean it's like a giant foot just steps on everything, and you're done. So be very, very delicate. Um, be nice to yourself. You know, get a nice cu cupcake or a mm -hmm. cookie. And I mean it, like do something nice, like that you like piece of pizza, but be very protective early on and, and really surround yourself with people. Oh, Jason, you're doing storytelling like the month. Oh, I love that. Um, I'd love to hear your story when you're ready to tell it. That's the tone of the other, the other person that you want to be sharing it with. Yeah. Be very, 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 okay. be very, very careful. Because you got your, your, your own insecurities are battling you right now. You got to get through that. Then you're going to go through that. No, no, no. You're creating an obstacle yeah. course before you even start anything. And no, when your first draft, your first story, if you're a writer, people know this. It's usually not good. The first draft of anything I work on yeah. uh, is usually not good. But I have faith because I've done yeah. it in the past. If I care about this idea and I keep working on it, most likely it's going to be good. Most likely, or it's going to lead to something else. But, but being very, very protective of yourself, especially early on. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's a really, really good point that the first, it's, it's almost like it's not supposed to be good, the first draft. Like, why would it be good? It's the first draft. Even if it is decent, it's still, this is the worst it's going to be. It's good. You're going to hone Jason, it. You're I going to make it students, better. I mean, you know, it's a six-week class that I teach and then the class show. I mean, it's a lot of pressure that we, I'm going to have a perfect story in six, not even a day, in six weeks. I tell them, this is just the beginning of the story. It's going to keep evolving. You're going to keep evolving. But this, the, the class show signifies yeah. not a final exam, but it's like a celebration of your work up to this point. Oh, that's really good. One thing that I think I struggle with with my work, because there are a lot of people who get vulnerable, and it's, if they're talking about their spouse or a parent, I'm always like, how? Yeah. How do they? Because <laughs> they might offend or, or or whatever. What is your advice for someone who's struggling with not wanting to bring up something in case 
it upset someone, but it's yeah, like their story. I, I wouldn't know? tell it. I wouldn't tell it. I think at the end of the day, you're getting on stage, mm-hmm. you're putting work into these things. You want to tell stories that you feel you feel comfortable telling. You feel, and if and, and if you okay. have any oh boy, like this this might shake the waters. I mean, yeah, people number one, people can do it the hell they want. But why why put yourself <laughs> right. in that? And I've done it. I've done. I mean, I'm I'm you know I'm not saying I have, I'm, I'm the end all be all. I've done it. But it, but like looking back in this with perspective, you know what? Like, and I tell my students constantly. I know I can get vulnerable. I've been doing this for many years. I want you to be when I say vulnerable, as vulnerable as you feel comfortable being. I'm not going to push you in the pool of vulnerability. Be you know, if you want to act with right. strength and talk with strength and and you know and and not show any anything. You know, do what you got to do. But I think. I think it's a process, not an event. And I think you need to, you need to be comfortable with getting on stage and how you're going to act and, and, and what you're going to talk about. And if you don't feel comfortable, save it, save it for a rainy day where mm. when you're ready to do it, you know, again, or, or, or maybe it's just not a story right now to tell. Why put yourself in those positions? Mm-hmm. You might have a terrible experience yeah. and stop doing it. You know what I mean? Right. And who wants to have a terrible experience? You know what I mean? Like, really? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. And thanks to your listeners. And I wish you continued success. You're doing a great job. I'm telling you, he's the nicest guy in the world. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you can check out his new solo show. It's this Friday, September 30th at 7 p.m. at the Magnet Theater. Also, you can sign up for his new storytelling class which starts this Sunday, October 2nd at The Magnet. And if you missed that, you can go to adamwade.com so you can keep up with show and class information. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is. And follow me on Twitter at Jason Farr Jokes and Instagram at Jason Farr Picks. Also, subscribe to our comedy lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info, links to all the things in the bio. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 